As we get started with this part of the morning, I asked you a few minutes ago to be thinking a little bit about your favorite movie series, something along those lines. And uh, I hope you thought of some that were at least like three movies long, a trilogy. A trilogy, of course, is a series of movies where, where there are, are three, but what started as a trilogy can easily turn into a, a tetralogy. That's a four movie series, but you didn't know that. A pentology, that's a five movie series. At some point, even a five-movie series was a three-movie series, right? So you can count that. Uh, hopefully, you thought of the greatest ones. Let me show you some of the ones I think of. Uh, some of us are here. We're old enough that we would say The Godfather. Anybody out there say The Godfather when I had you turn and talk? Thank you. Uh, I will tell you, I have a particular bent toward The Godfather. Obviously, it set the standard for what a mob movie ought to be, right? Uh, some of us might say Back to the Future. Anybody say Back to the Future out here at all? Okay, a few more of you said Back to the Future. There's never a moment Back to the Future is on TV that I don't like stop, watch, uh, stop what I'm doing and watch at least a few seconds. Even my kids, generations later, like watch Back to the Future. Uh, Toy Story, anybody say Toy Story at all out there? I know there are four Toy Story movies, but at one point it was a trilogy. There were only three. There were no plans to make it. It was arguably the best animated trilogy of all time. Put Pixar on the map. Those are good. Might have been thinking of those, but there are a few that I'm gonna bet nobody here said at all, okay? Um, the Mighty Ducks, did anybody here? Say the Mighty Ducks. Didn't even know there were three Mighty Ducks, did you? Um, the Matrix. Did anybody say The Matrix? You said The Matrix? Look, I liked The Matrix. It's just like if you go to the sequel and you need to bring a cheat sheet to understand what's happening in The Matrix, you've gone too far into The Matrix. So uh, too many movies there. Uh, Oceans 11, 12, and 13. I bet nobody said those, right? No one, you probably didn't even remember that they made three of those. Um, well, what is perhaps the greatest trilogy of all time has not been a trilogy now for 24 years. Uh, this spent 16 years as a trilogy until 1999 when they made a prequel and another prequel, and a prequel after that. Prequels that were all received with mixed reviews. The trilogy became a hexology, that's six movies. There was a plan to someday make a few more movies, but it was sketchy because the prequels were kind of iffy until 2015, The Force Awakened. And two more movies were made, ending in Rise of the Skywalker. And however you feel about the prequels, if you watch the last three with Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia, when you saw those actors appear on the screen for the first time in 32 years, you got chills, right? I teared up a little bit, I will tell you that. See, in 1977, I was five years old when the first Star Wars came out, and it was a life-changing experience. I had the lunchbox, I had the figurines, I had my own land speeder toy, uh, our sand-colored living room carpet substituting for the sands of Tatooine. I think everything that I learned about drama and movies and culture started with Star Wars when I was five. Um, I was eight when the second movie came out. I was 11 when the third movie came out. And Star Wars was like the soundtrack to my childhood. You guys, I had Star Wars bed sheets. Does anybody remember those specific sheets? Um, when we got married, Andrea made me stop using them. But otherwise, <laughs> they were so cool. And Star Wars started as a trilogy. And while I learned lots of things between five years old and 11 years old during those first three movies, one of the things I learned was what an empire was. The Galactic Empire ruled through force and fear and tyranny with their stormtroopers and the Death Star and, of course, Darth Vader. 
And it's when I learned that, that empire was a dirty word. Uh, you don't want to be an empire. Yes, the empire strikes back, but someday there will be a return of the Jedi. Empire was a collection of evil people bent on destroying the world. Now, prior to that, to me, empire was a carpet company. <laughs> Five, eight, eight, two, three hundred. Did they have that here in California? It was big in Chicago, empire. Oh, oh, so somebody knew it. Somebody knew it. Okay. Empire was a state to me. Empire was a building that King Kong swung off trying to, to hit airplanes. I did not know what an empire was until Star Wars, but it did a pretty good job at getting it right. Uh, an empire is a group of people, uh, or groups of people, really, states, countries, whatever, all under one single supreme authority. And usually the reason that there are people or groups of people in an empire is because they were conquered. It is rare that anyone opts in to an empire. People are conquered, sometimes far away even from the center of the empire, conquered by another people, and ultimately they're controlled by the person who leads the empire, who is called what? An emperor. And generally, throughout history, while stuff gets done in empires, by that I mean there's usually some efficiency, and when you've got force, things get done, and numbers can be hard to argue with. Generally, we frown on empires. Why? Oh, because of the whole conquering thing. And empires demand your loyalty, your allegiance. They demand your attention. And ancient empires, although I would argue even modern ones, demanded your adoration. If you were here last week, I told you about Domitian, this emperor in the Roman Empire around 100 AD, the time that Revelation was written. He was requiring that people worship him. But I will tell you, Domitian was not the first, right? Many emperors, many pharaohs, many kings demanded that people in their empire worship them which seems incredibly insecure, doesn't it? That, that you could be emperor, you could have it all, and still have your feelings hurt if people don't give you their attention, but it's the way that empires go. And I wonder this morning if in a spiritual sense, there might be some empires in your life. Um, what I mean by that is, there are some things vying for your attention and your allegiance and your adoration. The Bible uses a word for what it is when we give in to those things. It uses the word idolatry. Now, I'll just tell you right away, that is an unfortunate word. Because you and I get to dismiss that word right away. In, in, in 21st century America, we don't do idolatry. We do not do a lot of idol worship. Because when you think of idol worship, you think of what I think of, which is Greg Brady finding this tiki idol in the caves in Hawaii and wearing it around his neck and it causing him to wipe out while surfing. Or Peter to have a tarantula, tarantula crawl up his body while in bed. We think of... A, Half of you have no idea. I'd say 90% of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But are there any other Brady Bunch fans that remember the Hawaii episodes? Thank you. That is just for you. And that sound, that is a great sound. That sound brings me back to my childhood. I'm going to make that like my, my text message notification on my phone. That sound. Okay. We think of idolatry as having to do with little idols that we worship or statues or altars that we set up. But that is not what it means in the Bible. What it simply means is when you set something up to be worshipped other than God. 
All right, well, once again, we have good news because when I define it that way, you don't think you do that. I don't think I do that. We don't worship other things. I don't sing songs about other things. I don't pray to other things. I don't fall down and say, I am not worthy to other things. And that's true, except that's not what worship is. I mean, we call the time in, in, in our service where we sing worship. But worship is devoting your loyalty, your attention, your adoration to somebody or something. And idolatry is devoting your attention, your allegiance, your adoration to something other than God. And we have things in our life that we do that with. I was thinking about this. It might be our phones, right? Screens. The average person spends three hours and 15 minutes a day on their phone. I was, I was thinking, if 2,000 years ago, you were to say to the ancient people, there is going to come a day in the future where people will spend over three hours a day holding a small rectangle in their hand and looking at it, they would assume that you were talking about an actual idol, right? Is, is it possible that those have become objects of, of worship? If worship means loyalty, attention, adoration? It might be your fitness routine. That can become an idol. It gets all of your attention and allegiance and adoration. Um, it can be food. Do you ever find yourself sitting at a delicious lunch, thinking about the delicious thing you're gonna have for dinner? It gets a lot of attention and adoration. Um, it could be your kids, who, 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 by the way, do deserve your attention and your adoration and your loyalty, your allegiance, but, but when they get more of it than God, that can become idolatry. All of those things I've mentioned and many more can be empires. Some of those things intentionally wanting to be empires. I'm talking about you phones with your incessant notifications. Um, some just fall into that role like your kids. And there's actually one more thing I haven't mentioned yet. I am confident can become an empire or an idol in our lives. And I think you're gonna see it today as we keep studying the book of Revelation. Um, I'll point this other empire out when we get to it, but let me just say for now, one of the main themes we see in this book of Revelation is the crumbling of an empire. Empires fall, they all do. And Jesus has something better for you in mind. All right, would you turn to the person next to you, look them in the eye, and just say, empires fall, they all do. Would you do that? Last week, uh, Andrea and I both, we, we took a group of 15-year-old girls from our daughter's school to the beach for our daughter's 15th birthday. And uh, one of the girls lost her phone. I'm pretty sure it's somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean right now. Uh, somewhere, Sebastian from Little Mermaid is trying to figure out how to use an iPhone. <laughs> Uh, we spent a lot of time digging in the sand, looking for the phone. We were hoping it was somewhere on the beach. Uh, Andrea and I walked up and down the beach to see if it washed up. And then we just gave up the search. And, 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 and then we all put our phones away because we were scared to death it might happen to us. And I went and bought a $12 Frisbee. And we played Ultimate Frisbee. Some of you remember Ultimate Frisbee? Uh, probably the same ones who remember Brady Bunch. Do any of you remember Ultimate Frisbee? And uh, I'll, my 50-year-old dad bod remembered Ultimate Frisbee uh, by the end of it. A lot of cardio in that game. I was very sore the next day. And we had a blast. It was the highlight of the day for me when we put away the things that vie for our attention and our allegiance and our adoration. We always find something better. And I want to tell you today, Jesus has something better for you if you will give up empire worship because all the empires fall anyway. 
All right, let me show you Revelation 17, verse 1. Take a look at this on the screens, all right? It says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. All right, real quick, if you were not here last week, can I encourage you to go back and watch that message? Like, try to find that some, uh, we'll have it online. I can tell you that much right now. Uh, you can go ahead and watch it online. I gave us three tools in that message to help us read Revelation responsibly. And if you are not here, you are going to think we are crazy as we read this right now. All this imagery, because it is weird imagery. And last week we talked about weird imagery. We talked, we talked about this as often being written in code, this book, because it was written from jail and it would be confiscated if it used plain speech. Nobody would ever get to read this letter, this book. And so, so the writer, John, uses code and, and we don't know what all the code means because we don't have the code book. Now we're getting more of that same kind of code right here. John says, I have a vision and an angel said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. Who is this woman, this prostitute? What is he talking about? He is talking about the Roman empire that has put him in prison. Let me show you how we know this. Look at verse two again. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. So this prostitute is not an actual human. It's code for something that the kings got in bed with, right? Again, as John is writing this, the Roman Empire is a very real thing. Now, I know uh, it has been a long time since most of us were in history class. So when we hear Rome, we think Italy. Maybe we think of a, a, we go smaller, we think of a city in Italy. But here is the Roman Empire in 117 AD. All right, I'm gonna name these very, very fast. What countries were part of the Roman Empire? You ready? England, Wales, Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, Austria, Switzerland, Luxembourg, Belgium, Gibraltar, Romania, Moldova, Ukraine, coastal Northern Africa, so Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Egypt, the Balkans, so Albania, Greece, Hungary, Bosnia, Slovenia, Croatia, Bulgaria, Turkey, and some parts of the Middle East, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, and Israel. It was massive. As we said last, really? <laughs> well, thank you. Could we go back in time and you could tell my history professors that I, I was able to do that? Uh, as we said last week, the emperor Domitian is persecuting Christians in all of that space. And as Rome has conquered country after country, nation after nation, kings have said, what can I do? What am I going to do? I will just give in to Rome, to the empire and save my own life. Kings have fallen in line. That's what that line means. By the way, the end of verse two, it says the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of the empire's adulteries. It's not just the kings. The people have sworn their allegiance and their adoration and their attention to the empire. Now, let me skip to verse six. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Again, last week I explained that this campaign of persecution in the Roman Empire against Christians, many, many Christians died because they would not renounce their faith and worship Domitian. If it wasn't clear who John is talking about in verses one and two, six makes it clear. The one who has been killing your friends and your family, Rome, that is the person or the empire that I am speaking of. 
Now, I'm going a little bit out of order, but look at verse 3. It says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Again, I don't know what all the imagery means. It's written in code. Um, lots of people claim to crack the code, but here, this one's fascinating because John decodes this himself. Uh, notice real quick, he, he says that this beast has seven heads. All right, six verses later in verse 9, John says this, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Real quick, this calls for wisdom. Okay, we read that and we think, oh, John is calling us to be wise people and you should strive to be wise. And we spent a whole series talking about wisdom, right? Last series, but that's not what this calls for wisdom means here. John is saying, hey, if you wanna understand all my weird images, you've got to know my code, so let me give you some wisdom. Let me reveal a little bit of the code book, he says. And then he does. The seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. He says, if you want to crack the code of the heads, what I'm really talking about are hills. Okay, well, the heads, super abstract, bizarre code. But when he says hills, we all know what he's talking about, right? Of course not, because we're 21st century Americans. We don't know what the seven hills are. Or do we? John talking about an empire that's center sits on seven hills. All right, do you know what Rome used to be called, actually often still is called? The city of seven hills, because it sits on seven hills. The ancients, even people today, call Rome the city that sits on seven hills. John cracks his own code with an easier code, but it's still code. And he's talking, you guys, about the Roman Empire that has been killing Christians as he's using this code. Now, why? Why, why does he say all this? Because of what he's about to say next. Take a look at verse 14. They will wage war against the lamb. We talked about the slain lamb, Jesus, last week. But the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. And the message that John gives to his readers is the empire will be lost. The empire that has been persecuting you will be no more. And Jesus, the slain lamb, will win. Yes, the empire has struck back, but the Death Star will be destroyed. Actually, that happened in the first movie, before Empire Strikes Back. But it happened again in the third movie with the second Death Star. Forget I said it. I'm making something complicated even more complicated for you. Just, just know that John says, I had a vision and the Roman Empire is going to fall. They all do. Jesus, the slain lamb whom we follow, will make that happen. And, and how will Jesus do it? Okay, real quick, check out verse 15. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute sits, the waters are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. They will hate the prostitute. We're not talking in a person here. We're talking about the, the empire. They will bring the empire to ruin and leave it naked. They will eat its flesh and burn it with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. In other words, the people will overthrow the empire and God will reign. Now, 
one of the tools that I gave you last week was this knowledge that the book of Revelation was speaking about current events at its time that are now ancient events. Empire was a current event at that time. And I hope I made a case a few minutes ago that empire, still a current event today. But can I show you something that should intrigue you? Um, can I show you something that should raise some red flags and cause you for a moment to wonder what is wrong with the Bible and why does it sometimes seem so inconsistent? Uh, we just read from Revelation 17 and we, we think it is written sometime around 100 AD and the whole point of that chapter is Rome will fall. The empire is going to fall. But let's read together Romans 13.1. Now this is Paul writing about 40 years earlier, writing in Rome to people who are living in the empire and he says this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have all been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority, you're rebelling against what God instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Huh? How in the world do we read in Romans that you are supposed to obey the law of the land and you should do this because God put the emperor there and then we get to Revelation and it's all about the empire's gonna die, it's from the pit of hell, we will all cheer on its demise and God is gonna use people to take it down. Which is it? Is it obey because God put it there or resist because God's gonna tear it down? Well, the best way to make sense of that is to understand some ancient events that used to be current events for both of those guys, Paul and John. Okay, Nero would have been the ruler of the Roman Empire around the time that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And Nero, while a narcissist and immature and incompetent and impulsive, was also kind of laughed at behind his back. He was an artist and he was a singer and a composer and he wanted large crowds of people to come see him perform and they did and he wasn't very good. He got bad reviews, mediocre reviews at best. And then when that didn't work, he tried to impress people with his athleticism. He bragged about winning races that he, he actually never ran in. Uh, Nero was certainly the emperor but was kind of a clown. And the empire was run by other people that Nero put in charge. And life went on, and the economy thrived, and the Christian church grew during Nero. And that is what is happening when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. Things were pretty good, or at least fine, until the summer of 64. Not 1964, 64. Fire raged through Rome. Over two-thirds of the city burned to the ground. Countless property lost countless lives lost, and people were suspicious of Nero, like he did this. And Nero had to quickly shift the blame, and Nero blamed this group of unpatriotic, un-empire-worshipping people called the Christians. Ancient historian Tacitus wrote that Christians were arrested, they were convicted, uh, not convicted of setting the city on fire, but there's no evidence of that. Their crime was hatred against mankind. Uh, what does it mean to commit hatred against mankind? It means that you wouldn't fall in line and worship the emperor. Some of those Christians were nailed to crosses. Some of them were covered in bloody skins of wild animals, and then they would set dogs loose to tear them apart. Some of those Christians were chained up and set on fire as nighttime torches to light the city of Rome while they burned. 
in Paul, who wrote that God put those authorities in place back in 57, probably would have written something very different in 64. And by 100, John says, no way, God is gonna tear the empire down. The attitude shifted. Christians came to understand their world differently. See, their attitude and their understanding went from God put this government in place to God will overthrow this empire that is oppressing us. Now, if, that, if that's interesting to you, especially if you like history, if that's interesting to you, maybe you see that shift. But let me explain why that is so relevant today. Because these two types of attitudes are part of a response to events that happen again and again throughout the history of the Christian world. These attitudes are just part of a bigger cycle that keeps happening. Christians believe God put a government in place and then they eventually feel oppressed by that government and they long for God to destroy what they feel is an evil empire. And where this gets really relevant is what comes next. Because it's not just those two attitudes, there's a third one. After God put the empire in place, shifts to God will overthrow the empire that's oppressing us, what always comes next is God will make us into an empire. We, the oppressed ones, we Christians, we will be the new empire. And then what follows closely on the heels of that is we will become the oppressive ones. Or not will, like we want to. It just happens. Let me explain. Uh, Christians continued to be persecuted by the Roman Empire until 313 when the emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. Um, you know why you're here today? Because between 33 AD, when Jesus was killed and resurrected, and 313 AD, Christianity flourished. While Christians were being prosecuted or persecuted, the Jesus movement, man, it spread rapidly. Because if you were going to be a Christian, you had to choose to be a Christian. It, it might mean your life. And its teachings were unusual. Like, the first will be last, and the poor are going to be blessed, and, and we exist to serve rather than be served, and God is love, and in Jesus we find forgiveness. All of those things were different. But in 313, Christianity became legal. And you know what started to happen when it became legal? Christianity changed. Life as a Christian changed. Most would say those changes weren't for the better. I'll give you an example. Christians who had been meeting in houses and in secret for 300 years, could now meet in public and use their resources to build big buildings. And instead of using their resources to care for each other's needs, which is all they used them for the first 300 years, they built great cathedrals, which I love visiting, they're glorious. But that was a shift. It went from being about each other in this new community of believers to being about buildings and monuments. In 380, the next emperor, Theodosius, made Christianity the imperial religion. You have to be a Christian. Christians went from God will overthrow the empire to we are the empire. And almost simultaneously, Christians became the oppressive ones. In fact, get this, some emperors seized places of worship from other faiths and they uh, donated them to Christian church leaders. The oppressed became the oppressors. Get this, as the empire would conquer new lands and new nations, the former kings or rulers of those lands would be told, you must convert to Christianity, and you've got to convince your people to do that as well. 
And all of a sudden, after 380, becoming a Christian had more to do with staying alive or politics or succeeding with your business in the empire than it did choice like before. Another thing that happened in that giant empire, Christian leaders started speaking on behalf of all Christianity. And a theme in those first 300 years when they were in homes, it was diversity. By that, I mean diversity of opinion. Those early churches were autonomous. They kind of came to doctrinal stances on their own. And yeah, Paul would write a letter to get them back on track every once in a while. But the fourth and fifth centuries, oh my gosh, four different areas of that empire had four different church leaders and hierarchies, and they disagreed with each other on doctrine. And yes, they competed for influence and dominance, but more importantly, they would say, we are the ones who are right about what it means to follow Jesus, and that other church is wrong, or more likely, those other three are wrong. And they started excommunicating each other. Those three churches aren't the real church. The church divided. The emperors started cozying up to the different leaders of those four different factions as a power grab, right? Whatever, whatever faction was largest at a given time was who the emperor would side with. And, and here's maybe the most important thing you should know happened when Christianity became empire. Christians went from being not of this world, which is what Jesus tells them they are in the book of John. They went from being not of this world to being a servant of the world, or really a servant of the Roman Empire. Christianity became less about serving the poor and the widow and the orphan and more about serving the Roman Empire. And you know what would happen after that? Christians would say, it's all good, it's okay, because God put the government in its place. Back to where we started. Now I'll just tell you, this cycle would happen again and again and again and again. God put the empire in place. God will tear down the terrible empire that is oppressing us. God made us the empire. We start oppressing others. If you think about it, it even happened here, right? Pilgrims come to America to escape religious persecution because in England, you had to belong to the Church of England. You have to belong, that's empire. They get here and eventually form a new government, but no matter what, many of them are, are, are Christians in this government, and what happens? They become the new empire, and do they oppress people? Do they ignore the words of Jesus as they build this new empire? Yes. They take land from indigenous people. They bring people from Africa and force them into slavery. Christians who did not have the power once and were oppressed now have the power, and they do this. Uh, do you know what I read this week? This is fascinating. In the Church of England, if a slave, if a black slave became a Christian and was baptized, their owner would set that person free. They would have to set them free because that man is your brother in Christ and you cannot keep him as a slave. So when they got to America, early American Christians who owned slaves, they didn't want their slaves to hear the gospel for fear that they'd have to set them free if they became Christians. Missionaries convinced many slave owners to change their minds on this. Change your mind, let slaves hear the gospel. And the Christian said, fine, but we will not allow baptism. That way our slaves have no claim to be free. Eventually, Christians in early America did allow their slaves to be baptized, but get this, as part of the baptism ceremony, slaves had to swear an oath to God that they would not use their conversion as an argument to be set free and promise to maintain loyalty to their master for the rest of their lives. Not God, their owner. 
To become a Christian, you had to agree to stay a slave. It is the cycle. And I'm not telling you that to make you feel guilty. You didn't steal someone's place of worship in 380. You didn't own a slave in the 17th century. I'm telling you this to say, this is something I said last week, when Christians feel like we have not had power, we want power from God. And when we want power from God, we tend to pursue power for God and we become the empire. But you now know from Revelation 17, God is not in the business of building empires. He conquers empires. Instead, God is about establishing a kingdom. A kingdom. I know we just finished a series on Choose This, Not That. Um, you're probably sick of that series. I am. You're sick of all those resolves, but I got to give you one more. Resolved. I will choose kingdom over empire. Next week, we're going to talk about what Revelation says about the kingdom, God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. There'll, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. I cannot wait to talk about that with you. But what I'll tell you now, the kingdom is already here in part. It's about Jesus. It's about the slain lamb. Jesus, who would go to the cross in mercy and in love because kingdoms win hearts. Empires oppose people, oppress people, and then they fall. All right, here's a question. How do you as a Christian know when you are slipping into empire worship and out of kingdom thinking? Let me tell you what you can look for, and I think these will be great conversations for small groups this week, but I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go through these very fast, all right? The first way to know that you are slipping into empire worship and out of kingdom thinking, when Christians start believing that the cause of Christ requires or involves political power. Okay, this is not a political message this morning, but we are reading about empire in Revelation today, which means... It is a message on government and politics, but it's not political. What I mean is, whether you see yourself as progressive or conservative, uh, red or blue, or something in between, seems to me political candidates on all sides long for your attention and your allegiance and your adoration. And I just, I find it interesting because a, a candidate or politician might want to create an empire and have you believe that God put them in place. Real quick, um, I, I follow politics pretty closely, and both political parties right now would say their way is the true way of Jesus, that their way is more Jesus-y than the other side. And, and it, it would seem to me, depending on the issue, each might have a decent argument to make on, on why they are more Jesus-y. But guess what? What we know from the Bible and from history, where that leads, the least kingdom of Jesus thing you can do is claim that your political position is the way of Christ. And both sides do it. It is the most manipulative thing I have seen people do in politics. Claim Jesus is on their side or God is putting them in power. And that is empire, it is not kingdom. And if you fall for it, you might be slipping into empire worship. Now, I don't mean Christians should be apolitical Please be involved in politics as the Holy Spirit directs you to be. And I don't just mean voting. Run for office. Don't be apolitical. But when you believe that God is on your side and not the other, you are longing for an empire that will conquer. When God wants to give you something better, his kingdom. All right, here's a second way to know that you're empire worshiping. When Christians stop questioning their own ethics as to how they treat other people. 
Once again, I'll, I'll say both parties do this. They claim to have a monopoly on righteous treatment of others, whether the others are the unborn or women. Immigrants or those whom they're trying to protect from bad actors entering the country. School children who live in fear of a shooting, those who want to defend their Second Amendment rights. Everybody can stake a claim as to why they are doing the responsible, righteous thing. Proverbs 21.2 tells us everybody is righteous and just in their own eyes. But if you cannot question whether you and your side or who you vote for might be wrong in their treatment of others, if you just can't ever see it, you're blind to how you might be oppressing others, you might be slipping into empire worship instead of kingdom building. Okay, a few more, I'll be fast. When Christians start believing that the ends justify the means, absolutely not. No, Revelation tells us God is in control of the end. We don't need to take control. Control is an empire word. Kingdom is about freedom. Okay, how about this last one? When Christians believe that the goal is winning the argument as opposed to having the conversation. The, the last few minutes have been very much about country, empire in that sense. But as I said at the beginning, empire, anything you give your attention and allegiance and adoration to. And I wonder, I wonder if even in our own families with our spouses and our kids or work, I wonder if sometimes our goal is conquering each other by winning an argument. I'm right, you are wrong, as opposed to having conversations, listening, hearing each other's voices, trying to understand. When, when you stop having conversations with people you disagree with, and instead you try to have debates that you win or arguments you win, you might be slipping into empire worship instead of building God's kingdom. I can't wait to tell you more about that kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation talks about it next week, the kingdom of heaven. But as we leave today, here's how I would challenge you. Who is your allegiance to? A nation? A movement? A political party? An idea? God has something better for you than an empire. Christ in his kingdom. All right, will you stand for me? Let me close in prayer as we get ready to go. God, we come before you today and, and we are so grateful that you have something better than empires for us. God, that you have a kingdom, a kingdom that you outline for us what it is supposed to be and you show us by the way of Jesus, the slain lamb. And God, I, I ask today, whatever the things that are drawing us, our allegiance and our attention and our adoration, God, I ask today that you would show us what those might be in our lives. So we might be able to turn from these things that will fall anyway and turn to you. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week.